Welcome to Unboard, unplugged, unscripted board leadership. A conversation between boardroom leaders that covers leadership, priorities, and influence. Now, here's Brian Hayward. Right off the bat, I want to acknowledge our sponsor. All of the proceeds, net proceeds, go to charity for our Pathways to Education. Today, I'm joined by Baltej Dillon, who I encountered. Uh, I won't get even into how I encountered Baltej, <laughs> but very interesting guy. So, uh, I, I, I like starting these things off with the simple question or, or situation, really. Um, you and I sort of walk into a building. And we're going over to the elevator and uh, the elevator doors open up. We walk in, you press eight on the floor and say, which floor do you want? And I say, oh, I'm going there as well. And what brings you here today? Why are we going to the eighth floor, Baltish? Well, thank you for having me, Brian. And I'm glad I'm on this elevator with you. But just before I start to talk about why I'm here, uh, maybe if I can take just a moment to acknowledge that I am speaking to you from the traditional unceded uh, territories of the uh, Katsi, Coquitlam, Kwantlen, um, Tawasan, and Semiamu people, First Nations and Coast Salish people, who were the original stewards of this land. So I'm grateful that uh, we can live, play, and work here. Um, what brings me here today with, uh, with you on this elevator is uh, to really um, just chat about some of our uh, forward-looking kind of ideas around policing, some things around public safety, um, some discussions around how we can uh, better uh, influence the direction and, and uh, efforts around public safety, uh, both as um, community members, as well as people that may be sitting on boards and directors. So when I tell people that I actually know the, uh, this really interesting guy, Baltesh Dillon, and, <laughs> and, and, and I'm sure that you're probably tired of this, uh, it's probably you know, like Mick Jagger gets asked to play satisfaction or something. So, <laughs> but, you know, the, the, so the, the thing is, oh, yeah, I say, yeah, uh, Baltish, he's, he refused, uh, he was an RCMP officer who refused to take his turban off. So, but the funny thing is, is like, what drew you to the RCMP per se? Like, what was the circumstances that something happened or I, I don't know the background as to what drew you to the RCMP? Yeah, it was it was really never um, any type of uh, desire to join law enforcement to begin with. To, to be honest with you, my interest was in pursuing a career in law. And, and as I was moving through post-secondary education, one of the pieces of advice that I w that was shared with me was to beef up my resume to better okay. <laughs> to have a better chance to have a better chance yeah every uh, parent tells their kid that right yeah so. yeah at, uh, at getting into law school so that uh that then led to volunteer work with the rcmp here in surrey and uh that exposed me to a number of different you know both experiences people, and also the uh, workings of a law enforcement agency and how it interacts with the community. So I found very quickly, and it took me two years to come to that decision, that there was a 
you know, the, the, the RCMP in Surrey sorely lacked representation from the racialized communities and especially the South Asian community that makes up a large portion of the lower mainland populace. And so as we, you know, tended to various calls, um, and many of them being from the South Asian community, folks would naturally gravitate towards me thinking that I was already a police officer and to start to speak to me in Punjabi or Hindi and mm-hmm. uh, felt a level of comfort. So over a period of time, I recognized that there's a, one, there was a gap. Two, it was very satisfying. And three, the, the folks that I got to, you know, to know, I still consider mentors and role models for myself, Dan Gibbons, you know, Greg Nixon, uh, Bob Rogalski. These are all constables, corporals at the time that I got to work with. They were dedicated absolutely immersed and con- fully, con- you know, uh, had, had conviction around public safety, gave of themselves daily uh, without reservation, would be at work half an hour, 45 minutes before they were needed there, would stay on an hour, two hours every day without any type of compensation. And so all of that was incredibly inspiring for me. And then being able to see the, you know, frontline work where people were in their greatest time of need being supported and held and assisted um, became a calling. And and so that's when I made a conscious decision to shift careers. And, and to be honest with you, Brian, I didn't really decide to go with the RCMP. I actually decided to go with law enforcement. So I applied to all law enforcement agencies. I applied to the RCMP, the U.S. Police Department, the Vancouver Police Department, the Delta Police Department. And uh, to, you know, just get into law enforcement. I wasn't really particular in what uniform I wore at the time. Um, and coming from so the, Malaysia, the whole episode uh-huh. with, with the whole episode with with uh, them. Interesting. You, you're you know, referring to people as mentors because, you know, sort of intuitively, I think, you know, these guys are trying to force me to do something that's, you know, contrary to my my very character and the essence of me. I mean, you know, is, is there a moment in that whole episode, not to belabor this, that where you went, you know, the heck with you guys. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go work with Surrey or, or, or somebody else. And, or, no, no, not really. There was the, you know, there were the people within the organization. And, and let's uh, be clear that there were definitely folks that had, it had, you know, did not want any part of me to be a part of the RCMP as they thought that I was going to change the Canadiana of, and the symbols of Canada forever. Um, and then there were those that, the, the mentors that I spoke of that encouraged me to join law enforcement, join the RCMP. So organizationally and as a country, we certainly had matured to the level where inclusion, and I think that's still something that we're so working on, it's not yet there, was something that we actually paid attention to in a meaningful way. It was a word that we threw, threw around at, back then, but I don't think we actually understood what it meant. Um, and there wasn't a proactive effort around doing that. We kind of generally kind of understood that, hey, it's good to have people that were policing to be a part of the police force, that, you know, that basic thinking. But, uh, you know, inclusion is much more than just that. So, um, so when the idea came along. It, it must, it must mm-hmm. be weird, though, like when you, you know, probably now when you meet people and, they, and the story is, they go, you're an icon sort of thing. And, and like I say, <laughs> yeah. it's Mick Jagger playing satisfaction. So, I mean, I, I, as I say, I don't, I want to, because, what struck me and it was a eureka moment for me was, is to just fast forward is when, when you and I first met yeah. and, and then you start talking about how you 
became involved in in some really high profile stuff with the Air India and the Picton murders and all all of that. And I, and 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 so my brain's a little foggy on like how do how do you go from being you know involved with what you're doing at the RCMP and then sort of get into some some pretty important and pretty high profile investigation, pretty sensitive as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, and I think that was just me doing the job and, uh, you know, the, 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 the work, the career absolutely excited me, uh, and wanting to be uh, good and competent and, uh, able to leave, uh, you know, the, the, the force having, uh, contributed in a meaningful way was, 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 absolutely part of my, you know, waking up moment every day. So, and not to mention the pressure that was also put on, you know, quote unquote, the first to have come into the force because uh, everybody else was going to be judged based on how I performed. Uh, so that's just how things go. So that added pressure was also there. And then personally, I also didn't want to be just be remembered as, the first turban wearing officer. I wanted to be remembered as a good police officer. Mm-hmm. And that was a personal goal and a personal, you know, um, a commitment that uh, I did not want to be simply remembered as a token. Uh, and that was, and that was something that, that I carried with me. Yeah. Well, and I can imagine that, that, uh, I mean, do people recognize you it now and say, Oh yeah, you're the guy you want. Can I have your autograph or any, or any of that kind of stuff? <laughs> <laughs> well, that, well, that happened more, uh, in my community. Uh, I think, uh, for the, for a large part, uh, yes. Uh, you know, in my community, I certainly enjoy a very, um, you know, kind level of, uh, you know, respect and honor. And, and, and I, and I've received, uh, you know, many community honors over the years and, and the community has been very grateful and, and, you know, what I've done and, and the, the, the challenges and the, and the issues that I went through initially in the larger community. Yes. From time to time, I, that still, that also happens. And, uh, and, uh, oftentimes I'm, I'm usually asked when I say to folks, uh, well, you know, I served in the RCMP and they'll ask me, well, did you know the fellow that went through the first guy that went through the, the <laughs> yeah. I said, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I know him quite well. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. So, so just, you know, the, the interesting for people to connect the dots because you go, okay, so here's Brian. He's living in, you know, Winnipeg and Paul Tesh is in the lower mainland. And you know, how do these guys connect? So, you know, just for people listening to this, you know, I, 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 there's a, there's a, there's a fellow, he's a good friend of mine, Al Babiak, who, uh, who went to director's college and because I wrote a book and, and you were silly enough to actually buy one, I think. <laughs> so, um, but, but Al said, Oh, you know, Baltish is going to write a book, which you are, aren't you? Just like, yes. Yes. Okay, great. <laughs> yes. So you started. It's <laughs> yes. um, sort of a running thing between us. By Thank the way. you. So, Thank um, you. But, but yeah, I also said, you know, you should talk to Baltish. He's a really interesting guy. And, and, and so fast forward, you know, a couple of things that go, okay, um, you're an RCMP guy and you've been, you've you know, made your mark and, and you've been involved in some pretty high profile cases. I mentioned in Picton and Air India and, why did you go into governance and, and take this formal governance training? Is it, 
you lose a bet? <laughs> <laughs> well, partially because it's not I, exactly okay. the most exciting yeah. stuff. You know? yeah. Well, I found it to be exciting, to be honest with you. Yeah, uh, I, I do too. But uh, I yeah. was dropped on my head as a baby. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, I got, I mean, I kind of fell into it. I was appointed to the board of directors, uh, uh, WorkSafe BC Board of Directors uh, some five years ago now by the uh, Minister of Labor, uh, Minister Harry Baines, asked if I would be willing to serve. I said, sure, I know very little about WorkSafe, but happy to support and, and jump in to be a law enforcement representative. And so when I got into that role, and, you know, and I've served at, in nonprofits in the past. Uh, this is not a nonprofit, of course. I mean, it's a semi, it's a quasi-governmental agency. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, you know, significant amount of work, significant amount of governance, significant amount of oversight, uh, all of the things that we can, you can imagine that comes mm-hmm. along with that role and responsibility. Mm-hmm. So that's when... I started to really both learn and also became a bit nervous as to I better get my, if you will, the proverbial, I'll just spell it as H-I-T together. Uh, to, <laughs> this is un- uncensored, uncut. Yeah, uh, yeah, it, but. yeah to, to be able to, you know, fully contribute um, as, a, as a board director. So when the chance came and the education was available, I jumped on um, and it's been very, very good because it's also, I found that it was also an opportunity to shape some of my thinking when it came to policing and, and modernization of policing and public safety. So it's allowed me to, um, you know, in, in a very interesting way, um, find that bridging around governance. And, and I, uh, as a result of it, uh, and, and prior to even taking the course, I, um, you know, was tasked with chairing the governance uh, committee at WorkSafe BC. So that, again, placed a significant amount of responsibility around driving that part of, of, the, uh, of the organization and uh, oversight <clears throat> around all things uh, related to governance and, and day-to-day operations. So, uh, yeah, very, very interesting. That's how I got into it. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, you and I connected back again because I was looking mm-hmm. to do, a, a, you know, a, an event for the Institute of Corporate Directors on, you know, in the in light of defunding right. the police and, and, you know, we should get this or that and change the governance. And, and it's, you know, the, the law enforcement isn't really serving the community, all that, that which, yeah. you know, is still alive. Um, you know, uh, without getting into what is, is, is governance in law enforcement broken? Do you think? And, and what's, what's your take on it from being involved in all of what you've been involved in and then having some governance and and thinking time too. That's a, that's a dangerous thing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, my, my take on it is that there's, there's levels of, um, uh, you know, where there are levels where governance is absolutely, you know, in place and working fine. However, I also believe that there's some reflection that is required on whether we are looking at governance or policing itself, you know, uh, from the right lens. And what I mean by that is that if, if we're simply looking at the police 
as the answer to our public safety concerns and public safety issues, which is the case for the most part, and, you know, for the large part, that's how we approach policing, that they are the answer to our public safety concerns for the, you know, generally speaking, then I think we're missing opportunities. I think there are, there are places, there are things that we can do better. If we look at policing as a component or an arm or a branch of public safety, along with all of the other areas of responsibility that a government or the community expects their elected officials to have oversight over, then uh, we come at it from a different angle, which is you now bring in public safety or public health, you bring in education, uh, you bring in bylaws, uh, you, bring in, uh, you bring in the, uh, you know, the, the drug policy, uh, you know, you bring in immigration and, um, you know, uh, you bring in all these other areas of responsibility that local and national government has you know, sort of accountability around. Uh, and so is that, mm-hmm. that, isn't that the essence of the defund the police thing is, is it's not just to lower taxes by having less money, but it's to take the money away from the, from traditional, you know, law enforcement and then allocate it over to, you know, social services. And, and as you say, you know, and, and is, is it, is that really the answer to this stuff? Because, you know, you and I did that when we did that conversation with, with the former Dean of the law school here, uh, you know, he's going, there's more than enough money. So yeah. what are we, what are we missing? Yeah. I don't think that's the answer. I don't think defund is the answer. I think it's about, um, you know, uh, how we fund, uh, and, and, uh, uh how we, in, we how we interface the various components that we identify as cri- critical to public safety. Look, education is critical to public safety mm-hmm. because yeah. man, nobody's born a gangbanger or gang gangster or organized crime figure. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, there are some things that shift and change and, and impact a person's life to ultimately, you know, have them fall into a life of criminality. Whether it's you know uh, as a as a one-time thing or whether that's a career that becomes, you know, part of their life. Uh, the police, you're, we're, we're always going to need the police. We're always going to need a reactive force to events that occur in our communities on a daily basis, whether that's a motor vehicle accident that happens on the side of the road, uh, whether that's a uh, protest that's occurring, uh, and we've had a number of those, uh, or whether that's a, uh, you know, um, uh, un you know, planned incident that occurs, a homicide of some sort uh, that, that uh, you know, that happens in our community. Uh, all those things require a response and that's not going to go away. So there's absolutely a place for an enforcement arm of public safety. I just don't believe that pub- the, the entirety of public safety belongs to policing and that it's one element of the larger public safety strategy. And until we shift our thinking to that perspective where the chief of police or policing is a part of a larger strategy, then only only then can we start to really work in a collaborative manner. At present, the only the collaboration happens in the field happens at the operational level. So when we pick up when 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 there's a mental health act uh, 
event. That's when the police interacts with mental health or the hospital or the doctors, uh, you know, or social workers or when there's a child issue that's, but some of that is not seamless. Some of that, is, there are still barriers that interfere with that, both information sharing being, um, you know, strategically ahead and forward-looking around those issues. And, and so that's where I think breaking down some of these silos, having greater cooperation and required to cooperate uh, would enhance our public safety strategy, not our policing strategy. I'm convinced that we, we don't, you know, we, we need the police, but what we do need to shift is our thinking around not a policing strategy, but a public safety strategy. So, so, you know, without getting in all the complications of, but who's, whose bogey is that one? You know, we've got municipal city councils. We have, we have police boards. Uh, we have provincial governments that are involved in social services. And, and I mean, I, I mean, the a cynic might say, oh, are you, are you actually suggesting we have this overarching super ministry of all things to do with safety and, and wellness or, or how do, I think that's where some of this gets stuck because, and everybody's got their pointed stick that they're trying to poke the other people with. And, and it usually involves money, as I said. So I don't know. Is there, is there a simple answer to that? No, <laughs> there isn't a simple answer, mm-hmm. but what it, what it, what it does require is I think if we all agree and I think we do agree, if we all agree that enforcement in itself is not the answer to our issues. Uh, and, and here's a simple, you know, sort of stat around that. If enforcement was the case, we have years now, we've dedicated gang enforcement teams, we've dedicated firearms teams, we have dedicated, you know, all kinds of different dedicated teams in the enforcement area. But if we are to, to look at those areas like gangs and organized crime, um, I would argue with you that uh, enforcement has not been the solution. And as a matter of fact, we have more gang members and organized crime figures today than we did 10 years ago. So in uh, and, and police chiefs and, and other police leaders openly say, and uh, including myself, that we're not going to be able to handcuff our way out of this. So, if we agree on that, interesting choice of words. Sarah. We are, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and uh, and if we agree on that, then then we can start the conversation around. Okay, and what do we? What else do we have in front of us? What else are our options? Well, our options are prevention, intervention, and disruption that come before enforcement, which is uh, very spotty on how we interact with those areas of. Um, effort. Uh, it's there, there's not a, a shared uh, sort of science around that. There's not shared knowledge around that. There's not shared experience on that. There's also not shared results. We all know that that's where we can have the most impact, but what tool, which strategy, what program, who's going to oversee it? How do we break down the barriers? How do we standardize that approach? How do we, uh, you know, create training and, and build experts? So I'm a you know, I, in my, in the RCMP world and, and, and when I was there, I was a, I was considered a subject matter expert in the areas of interrogation and interviews. So we have a, you know, there is a particular pathway, a career that one can take. You can be a major crime investigator and so on and so forth. Yeah. And I was a polygraph operator for a number of years, but there's not a particular pathway or skill sets or schooling or, you know, uh, criteria that is clear or standardized uh, that 
ultimately will yield us results and bring us a return on our investment. So, you know, let's, let's flip to the other side of the, uh, the pond here is um, I think, you know, you said when we were talking uh, that uh, back always that when you started, there was something like 20 organized gangs in the lower mainland Vancouver area. And now there is, I think it was over 200, but I, I got to thinking it's, uh, and this comes from the lens of a governance geeky person, uh, as some people would look at me as they say, like, how, how does organized crime govern itself? Like, you know, we were worried about diversity, different points of view. So, you know, when you're a gang, is, is there a chair of the board and is he have an agenda and, and there are minutes kept as to who's going to, you know, you know, Billy, you, you do the next hit, Jane, you go down and do this or it, it, are they, how, how does organized crime, they must be pretty damn good at, at governing because they're damn good at, at what they do. Cause if they, if they're, you know, almost like McDonald's, if they went from 20 to 200, one, you know, how, how does, how does a gang organize itself? Well, I can tell you, Brian, in, that in my years of service, and I, and I have sat across uh, a number of gang members and, and also worked in federal policing and also had opportunity to uh, sit with, you know, uh, figures that operated at the higher level in organized crime. So there's gangs and then there's organized crime that really are the employers, if you will, for the lack, for lack of a better word, of the gangs and, and, and the folks that are the drug runners and, on our streets. Um, and I would argue that many of these, many of these, uh, you know, uh, fellows uh, that I came across would have could make uh, would would have made great CEOs, great CFOs, great uh, governance directors, uh, you know, great COOs. Um, and some of the strategic thinking that they put in place to protect themselves and to protect their enterprises, uh, you know, you would find in legitimate and legal industries. So. They're they're very intelligent. They're very smart. They're just on the other side of the line. And and when and when there's a you know a corporate takeover, the corporate takeovers are is what we call our gang conflicts in the Lower Mainland, and in other places of the country. When there's a vacuum that's created because we've either arrested or taken a particular group of people out of business, or you know, uh, and have freed up that space uh, and create a vacuum. Well, there's three or four other very industrious gangs that are just looking over to take over that place and over that enterprise. And, and that comes with violence. That's when we experience, you know, those bouts of violence, the folks above them in the organized crime groups, they don't care who is running the streets or who is the, you know, the retailers, if you will. Um, They are, in it to move the product uh, and collect a certain price. So if we look at it as a business model, um, at the end of the day, what drives them is profits. They're in it to make money, as much money as they can, and they're prepared to use whatever means necessary to you know, advance uh, their criminal enterprises. So, so, I mean, are the bad guys winning? You know, it, this, there's lies, damn lies and statistics. And so, be, oh, you know, there's more murders, there's more guns, there's more this. And then, but then, you know, with the rate per capita, this is going down. And so, you know, what, what's your take from, you know, where you're sitting, you're sitting 
you know, are we, are we losing this battle or, or is it sort of a soft or? Well, well, we are. <laughs> to be we are yeah, so when you come to a fork in the road, take it. You can't have that one. Are, are, yeah. We're losing it. Yeah, I, I think so. Like, I mean, is the is the opioid crisis not an indicator for us? I mean, we're losing hundreds of people, uh, you know, on, a, on a, uh, thousands of people on, a, on a, an annual basis. I mean, you know, and then as far as homicides are concerned, like, how many lives is too many? You know, yeah. what are we prepared to tolerate as far as, well, we can tolerate 10 gang murders, but not 11. I mean, we, so to me, one gang is too many. And, and having one young life lost based uh, due to, you know, a, an organized crime or, or a gang related shooting, that's us losing. Absolutely. So, so to me, that's very clear. I, I view it in that way. Uh, a, a mother or a parent or a family losing their child, uh, you know, and, and having to, to find them on the, on, a, on the curbside, having shot, you know, four or five, six times. Yeah, that's a loss. That there, there's no winning in it. When we go actually arrest a homicide or a murderer, uh, or a suspect, uh, you know, we haven't really won anything. There's nobody in the community asking us to go solve crime. I think everybody wants us to prevent crime. Yeah. And I, I, the interesting thing is, is that, you know, when there's, when there's a bunch of murders or something happens, usually it's not directed. It's a directed. The, the, the fact that something happens is directed at the police chief. And then it's directed at the politicians uh, who really have no direct daily involvement in it. And, and probably the, the scope of it and the fragmentation of all of what needs to be done is, is beyond their capability to even come up with any, any rational response. Um, it's, it's a, yeah, I, but you know, they, again, back to this, to, to the, the governance lens that, you know, you and I are both trained in, I just like I say it's yeah. a facetious yeah. thing, but if, if the bad guys are winning, um, you know, I, I just try to, I scratch my head and think about, you know, uh, or wonder about how, we, how, how it is that we can actually organize ourselves. Cause that's what, what boards ultimately do in companies or for not-for-profits or whatever is to organize things to be, make sure that we get the right people doing the right things, highest and best, you know, highest use of, of, of time on the, on the most important tasks. Well, so I think the you, question, yeah, I think the question starts and that's a very good question as to what governance boards are, you know, should be doing or looking at and what's the, what's the lens we need to look at. Well, I think we need to shift. And that's what I was suggesting earlier is that the, the shift yeah. needs to happen to go from how many people did we arrest to how much prevention work did we accomplish? So, and, and like any other board or any other organization, profit, nonprofit, we're, we're back to the metrics. We're back to the data. We're back to the return on investment. We're back to the KPIs. So, what exactly is it that we want to measure? Do we want to measure how many crimes we solve or how many crimes we prevent? Yeah. Well, and the latter is more like listen for the dog that's that's not barking uh, because yes. you just don't. And, and 
you know, to me, the metrics that, that the average person gets, yeah, and I'm an average person on this front is, you know, oh, I just turned the TV on and there was, it just happened actually last week, just the biggest drug bust and there was X millions of dollars and there was so many much in cash that was, and that's more in how, how many guns and, and then people go, yeah, we're, we're, we're making some inroads, but, um, but we're, what we're not seeing is the dog that's not barking. So, or not, we're hearing that. So you're going to write a book. So back to that. What, <laughs> yes, yes, what, I am going to write. What, what, yes. Is it is it is it going to be an autobiography or 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 is it or something? I, it, yeah, I, I think it's going to be a bit of a life story and uh, speak to my challenges when I first um, decided that I wanted to serve in you know law enforcement as a Canadian and really speak to you know the uh, um, what I had to confront. Uh, as a Canadian in my country uh, from other Canadians um, and uh, you know, both good and bad. Um, and, and I, and I want to speak to that honestly and truthfully uh, I've come across and I've spoken to some of those folks that back 32 years ago were uh, adamant that, uh, you know, bringing or changing the uniform of the RCMP would be catastrophic and we would lose our identity as a nation. Uh, who now say, well, yeah, no, I, I don't feel that way anymore. I think I was, you know, I, I don't know what was going on, but I didn't really have my head on straight. Uh, to folks that still believe that and are, you know, continue to occupy that place. God bless them. Uh, and I also want to talk to about some of my, you know, some of what I experienced within law enforcement, um, where we were successful, where I thought we did make headway. And it's not all doom and gloom. I think, you know, my brother and sister police officers and uh, chiefs of police and administrators across the country are doing the very best that they can, given what we've got. I think we can do better. We can do more. We just need to be strategic and, and more expansive in our thinking and we need to include folks that are not potential, you know, particularly living the enforcement life every day, but looking at it from a different and a bigger lens. So that requires some trust and also some, you know, uh, uh, being vulnerable uh, to be open to criticism. I want to talk about that. And I, and I also want to talk about my time in the Picton investigation, the Air India Task Force investigation. Um, and and then I, you know, I think I just want to speak generally about, you know, life in Canada and where we've made strides and how we are as a nation and a country and where I think we have work to do and things that we can, you know, do better at. Yeah, I, just to loop back for two seconds on Picton, because, you know, my, my wife's a psychotherapist and, and is there adequate support for, for, you know, for, for law enforcement uh, professionals that have to deal with, you know, some of these circumstances and events, uh, you know, the, the more that I sort of am exposed or become aware, uh, it makes me wonder that, you know, is, is people must get ground down and, and, it's uh, is that a gap that you, that you see? Um, it's not part of the governance of the police, but it's part of the fabric of making sure that we have healthy people that are have uh, are self aware and actually are dealing with the, what's in front of them in in a in in the appropriate way. As just given what you've had to deal with, I would be interested in your thought. 
Yeah, no, there uh, absolutely. Well, the first question is there is a lot of support. Second part of that is, are we actually taking advantage of that support and organizationally, are we tuned into uh, having our membership, um, you know, um, absolutely committed to making sure that they are healthy? We've come a long way. We haven't got, we still have a long way to go. Um, You know, there was a time, and I'll just use this, you know, uh, sort of analogy. Is there there was a time when I joined the RCMP, Mm -hmm. we didn't we didn't wear, you know, bulletproof vests. We we just Mm -hmm. didn't have any, and and then you know it it uh, came along that that was mandatory and we had to wear them all the time, and we wouldn't couldn't leave our office without having our bulletproof vests on, and it was made mandatory. So. and so there was a growth there. There was an understanding. There was an awareness. Well, we're still learning how to put on our mental health vest on. Mm-hmm. We haven't gotten to the point where it's a mandatory thing that you must put on your mental health vest uh, if you're going to yeah, be a part of law enforcement. Interesting analogy. Yeah. It's- yeah. So, so because the reality of it is um, you could go through a career in the RCMP or any law enforcement agency and never get shot at. Never. Um, and But you will not go through law enforcement, uh, either as a frontline officer or as a support person. Uh, and that goes for you know non-law enforcement areas as well, all frontline responders. Uh, guaranteed, guaranteed that your mental health will be affected and impacted. 100%. Some of the things that frontline responders see, I don't wish on anybody. And you can never forget them. Uh, and those are some of the demons that I carry with me. Uh, you know, I have PTSD. I'm managing it for the last 17, 18 years through a lot of personal work, um, through the Picton investigation, through the Air India Task Force, through other files that I worked on. Uh, you know, as a polygraph examiner, part of my job was to look at, review, uh, and, 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 you know, investigate sexual assaults involving children. Um, I worked in you know, homicides frontline responders are going to accidents, uh, horrific scenes. You can't, you can't unsee those things. And they um, absolutely tear away and, um, you know, uh, eat away at, at you uh, over time. And unless there is a, uh, you know, commitment and an active uh, process to continuously, uh, create self-help and um, become healthy, you know, with a, with a strong mental health strategy, uh, we're going to lose more officers. I've got, I've had friends that committed suicides and we have the highest number of people that, you know, in law enforcement, other first responders that continue to, you know, have broken families uh, and turn to, uh, you know, alcohol and other addictions um, to cope with some of those challenges. So uh, as much as the support is there, <clears throat> we are not yet good at ensuring that we're wearing our mental health vest on a daily basis yeah, to yeah. protect ourselves. Well, I think that's a great um, way to kind of a thoughtful way to close off. I, I, I would explain, I have a, a personal appreciation. I, you know, you and I became acquainted through some, as I was saying, some fairly 
bizarre uh, little paths crossing. And but you, you don't realize it actually because you sent me the challenge coin. Yeah, and it's, <laughs> yes. it's in my office, and and it, and the the history of the challenge coin. Uh, maybe if you want to close off on this story, so that it's not me telling this story. But you sent me the challenge coin. I was very honored by that. But the challenge coin is what? Well, the challenge coin comes from a from a long tradition, but for you know modern day uh, sort of uh, work it's it's a it's a symbol it's a it's a way to honor the the work that various agencies organizations do and and uh when we meet with each other it's a it's a way to um you know share that uh, uh respect and and also uh honor the other person's uh work that they're doing in their areas of responsibility um and it's a uh, it's a point of pride for different organizations as well to have this coin to be able to represent uh, some of the work and difficult work that they do on a daily basis. So uh, we use it to you know both share the story of that particular unit organization and as a way to honor others and uh, also to uh, continue to raise awareness around the the many, 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 many different organizations and agencies that continue to serve in law enforcement. That's the modern day version of the challenge coin. But if you're found without a challenge coin in a bar, uh, somebody produces it and you're buying, you're buying the drinks. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I'm not drinking anymore. (laughs) Well, my friend, I am honored to be uh, an owner of the challenge coin that you sent to me. And, um, very interesting perspectives on uh, not not law enforcement, not organized crime, but on public wellness and 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 the safety of all of us, and especially with what's happening uh, in this world. Uh, being safe is is uh, and being in a country like ours is certainly a wonderful thing. So uh, God bless. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate you. I appreciate all the work that you are doing. And uh, I want to end on a positive note. I am grateful for our country, our nation, the people that I walk and and live and work with. Uh, So absolutely grateful. And so all the things that we've spoken about, there's much more to celebrate. Uh, The things that we have to fix, we can do as a nation, as a country and citizens of this place. And I am hopeful, absolutely optimistic always that uh, we have the potential to do it. Thank you, Baltej. And, and again, just to close off, I th- and thank the people, Wellington Altus, uh, that, that do provide support for, for this podcast. And, and hopefully that people will uh, subscribe and uh, spread the word. And I just, again, thank you for being with me today. And uh, God bless. Unplugged, unscripted board leadership. This is Unboard.